You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this, this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. Coming up, Aaron Coultate takes us into the home of Lobster Theremin to meet Jimmy Asquith for a behind-the-scenes tour of a thriving operation that's more than just a record label. Lobster's like a growing crystal, like each facet has to grow from another facet that already exists and that's how it makes sense and you have sub-facets and sub-crystals of other larger crystals um, but occasionally you get something that is outside of that and so you need to nucleate it from another point and so this is why I start other labels whether they be subs or separate ones um, is to explore that idea. And Will Coldwell travels to Liverpool to trace the history of the harm reduction movement speaking to pioneering researcher Dr Russell Newcomb whose rave research bureau was advocating a compassionate and educational approach to ecstasy use at nightclubs as far back as 1987. As time goes on drug prohibition just continues to spectacularly fail. It doesn't work, it's, it's never worked, and the problem with drug prohibition is it kind of militates against harm reduction all the time. What harm reduction is doing in dance clubs is trying to work against the worst effects of what drug prohibition does and how that works out in nightclubs. First up, let's hand over to Aaron and meet the Lobster Theremin family. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. Lobster Theremin is many things. It's a record shop, a distribution business, a party series, and a record label. In fact, it's several record labels, with a variety of offshoots that have released more than 100 records between them. Since its first release, the 2013 EP from Palms Tracks, Lobster Theremin has built a dedicated following that stretches far beyond its home in East London. The head lobster, Jimmy Asquith, is a cheery Yorkshireman with an entrepreneurial streak who arrived in London nine years ago. He runs Lobster from a space near London Fields in Hackney. There's a small, well-curated shop at the front, but it's out back where you get a true sense of this thriving enterprise. There are boxes of vinyl stacked to the ceiling and a steady stream of couriers picking up and dropping off records. I spent some time in the shop with Jimmy, who gave me a tour of Lobster HQ and also selected four records that have been crucial to the label's journey. So I'm uh, Jimmy Asquith. I run Lobster Theremin, Lobster Distribution and Lobster Records. I'm from Brighouse in West Yorkshire and I moved to London nine years ago with uh, the intention of trying to work in music basically or just at least get involved. I also produce under a number of names, Asquith, Tom Hang and Chicago Flotation Device and I also work at Koska Studios as a, an in-house booker and programmer and run Farm in the Dark. So we're walking through the shop now? Yes, so we're here in Lobster Records. Um, this room is actually was not here before. Uh, so we had these walls put up to kind of encase, to essentially make a record store. Otherwise it would just be one huge distribution space. I really wanted to make sure that the feel of the store was something a bit more fresh and a bit more open. Plenty of listening stations, plants, books, sofas, like somewhere you could actually come and not feel intimidated into buying records, but you could actually just relax. Like if you were hungover on a Saturday and you want to listen to ambient, like just come and hang out. Also, I guess there's a few features that were intended to reduce the separation between the person selling records and the person buying records, which is why we have a hollow desk. So when you come in, you can actually see the person who's serving you's legs. I know that sounds a bit odd, but it means that the barrier between you is literally incredibly thin. Like you don't feel like the level of this person is on some kind of raised or, you know, separated. You are both together talking about records and looking at records. The people who work here at the minute are all like young people who know our catalogue and know the things that we sell and are interested in talking about music and are friendly. Like I, I want that to be the feel. You come here to find things that you won't find highlighted in other stores. Yeah, so the first of these four records is Lips by Days. Um, the significance of this one is that this was the first release I self-distributed myself. I just stopped working one of the jobs that I did three days a week. I was doing two days a week at Corsica and the rest of the time I was doing the label and that was the first time of, I guess, really being properly self-managed, self-employed, doing the thing that I loved at least for a few days and that was like massively exciting and liberating. It's nice to take all the skills that you've been cultivating for years and then 
be able to put all of them into the thing that you do and that you love that that felt like such a huge step and and also because that record was such a massive success as well um really launched days and within six months of the record coming out like we were all playing at panorama bar it was a really good period of time lots of people reached out about that record as well like lego well actually bought it off Bandcamp, and i just pretty much did a a full backflip like you know like i was just like i can't believe this although we'd released a lot of very important records to that moment at that moment it was like i feel like something else has happened and it kind of felt a bit of a shift How did you get involved with music? So I spent the best part of my time at university in Newcastle um, wanting to be a music journalist whilst not attending as much as I should have done a chemistry degree Um, and also getting involved in DJing and and producing and when I came to London I started to intern for a magazine and I guess just get involved in music. I'd lost uh, quite a bit of money whilst running events at uni. Learn pretty much went to various agencies and artists and venues, but you know, it was kind of like trying to break into something and trying to get something going. And then I started to basically get the itch for events again. Started running a night, Streets of Beige, and then got more and more into events again. And actually that became more my entry into this industry as a formal job. I basically arrived at Corsica Studios and I still work there now, five years later, which is the longest time I've ever worked for anyone else, I'd say. Which is a, a testament to how incredible that club is and how incredible the people are. It's like a real family. I think that's what I was looking for the whole time. And how did your time putting on parties after you'd arrived in London lead to you starting Lobster Theremin, the record label? I always really enjoyed, I guess, if you were to say like A&R, like I really enjoyed finding new music, especially through, when I was at university, through that era of, I guess, like Bloghouse, I would be just every day checking every blog, downloading all the tracks, and I just wanted to, it was almost like the shortest distance between getting new music, finding new artists, and then showcasing that, and I kind of continued that idea when I came to London and started to put on a lot of brand new artists, a lot of people who were unsigned, who have actually gone on to do pretty well now, and it's it's nice to get people whilst they're fresh and try and do something that's a bit more exciting and untested. There wasn't the same level of pressure in London as what there is now. But then obviously getting up at um, half eight to go to a job in Carnaby Street the next day wasn't always the, the easiest thing. And that's the thing to say is that I, I didn't just come here and fall straight into a job. I was working four days a week in retail, doing other bits of jobs like flyering. Then I was interning three days a week and then going out all the time so it was just it was just a constant thing but i mean you know when if you're if you're in your early early to mid 20s and you really want it and you've got that energy you just got to go for it feels like that's maybe um 
an energy that still exists within the lobster team you mentioned to me some of the people that are involved here now have like a, a side hustle they also dj they put on parties is that something are they the kind of people you look for yeah i really like people who have i guess a varied skill set but also I, I guess it's that reflection of 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 my own ethos when it comes to doing things it's like it's like i don't just want to do one thing i want to do all these other things and find a, a multitude of expressions i think that's really important you know there's a number of individuals here who who do that you've got rosie morris and she works here she's she's actually worked on the distribution she now works on the label she's been involved in the shop she also works at costco studios um she works doing artist management uh she's dj'd you know it's like there's so many things in that and i can totally identify with that and i generally encourage it because i think the more you understand each of that chain the more you can then make decisions based on the larger and wider industry and do you think that's the sort of best way to kind of get a foot in the door these days is to have you know be spinning a few plates um to kind of make it a viable option to work full-time in independent music i think that it's really important to have as broad a skill set as possible knowing how to use photoshop to do basic design understanding how to edit audio going out and running events starting to run a label just getting in there making all those mistakes and learning straight away if you want to work in the industry and you arrive and you've run events you will know how to use bandcamp soundcloud discogs every platform inside out you understand how social media works you know how to edit audio also for cost as well if you want to do things diy and you want to do them yourself i just couldn't afford to pay a designer to do anything and so i just had to find out a way to learn how to design basically you rip a copy of photoshop and then you find a tutorial and you you just learn how to do what you need to do i mean that's at least that's my ethos and if i think yeah, especially living in the city where it was in, in this city in particular is obviously quite expensive and you know you can make it cheaper but working in retail for four days to be able to do the internship and then trying to get together say 50 or 100 pounds to do a flyer is not always doable but you may as well learn those skills whilst you can and, and they'll be hugely useful in the future. So the next one is uh, Waiting by Hidden Spheres. This is the first release on the offshoot Distant Hawaii. Like with any of the offshoots, the first record's always very special because the decision to start a new label doesn't actually come from the decision to start a new label. It comes from hearing a record that justifies starting a new label because it doesn't fit with the palette of what we're working on at Lobster. Lobster's like a growing crystal, like each facet has to grow from another facet that already exists and that's how it makes sense and you have sub facets and sub crystals of other larger crystals. Um, but occasionally you get something that is outside of that and so you need to nucleate it from another point. And so this is why I start other labels, whether they be subs or separate ones, um, is to explore that idea. I think there's some records that give me like hairs on the back of my neck and that's definitely one of them. Like I remember hearing it and just being like, oh my God. <laughs> you got much of a handle on your audience, your following, um, 
do you see it as a, is it a London focus following you have or is it sort of spread across the globe at this point? It's, it's changed quite a bit. Initially, we had a massive response from France, actually, and that's that has continued. I'd say that the US is a, a place that we've had the strongest response to what we're doing at the minute. The UK has always been very strong, especially being a UK label, um, London-based. I think that helps a lot and kind of feeds into a lot of electronic music history. In what ways do you feel like Lobster Theremin is a product of its time and its location? I don't think I have a direct London electronic influence. I'd say that like the thing that's really inspired me was Rough Trade. You've got the label, they started distributing other labels because they were like, we want to get this great music out to more stores. They started their own store. I mean, obviously we're nowhere near the size of that institution, but that's something I, I just identify with the way they did it. And I don't know, that's that, that was the nearest thing for, for a long time. There are more recent influences musically. They tend to be more worldwide though. You know, in the lead up to starting the label, it was like Workshop, Firecracker, Lies, Trilogy Tapes. You know, there was all these different influences of independent labels, but I'd say in terms of like a creative and business structure intertwined, like Rough Trade was very like, that seems to be the thing that was exciting me in terms of why to do this. Is this for you guys? It's for us, sorry. Can we just take it? Yeah, so UPS basically come every day and bring um, some deliveries. Tanya! <laughs> So every day we have multiple couriers and um, and also Royal Mail come to collect from us. We've just packed a load of orders to go out. But yeah, UPS have come to collect a, a load of boxes that are now going to go off um, regionally and internationally to different stores. And they've thankfully just brought the other half of the Route 8 pressing. Let's have a look out the back, shall we? The distribution is a much larger space contained around the back of Lobster Records. We have a large kind of storage area for new incoming stock. I guess there are also various loose boxes around us as well. We use some of the Calexes to organise shop stock and to also organise um, artist copies or mixed media. Like we have a lot of stickers here as well that we use for releases, a lot of stamps. There is literally like three huge boxes of every past hand stamp that's ever been made um, for every release. I guess we organise the merch here as well. And then adjacent to this is the office, which is a few tables with lots of staff generally tapping away or I mean there's not too much ripping tape at the minute if you'd have come earlier there would generally just be the ripping of packing tape um, and the kind of the sound of crunching cardboard like you know there's if, it, if it's quite a heavy packing day there'll be a lot of a lot of that going on well yeah my first impression was that it's it's a bigger sort of amount of stock than I anticipated even knowing full well how many sort of labels you distribute and work with and we actually distribute around 250 labels and then in-house I'd say we run around 15. There's quite a lot going on. There's lots of little treasures as well, boxes of old tapes, discogged tapes and little rarities and classic warehouse finds. You'll just find a box of something and be like, oh, there's, there's that. Should we say hi to uh, the team? Yes, let's say hi to everyone. My name is Annette. I am um, the uh, sales manager here. My regular day starts with speaking to all of the record stores all over the world. They place their orders and uh, I just get that all together and then I do some packing as well and I guess I could call myself the brain of this warehouse because it might look a bit disorganized but then whenever people ask me where something is I can tell them immediately exactly where it is. It's like a fun game, just running around the warehouse and pointing where everything is. But when you're on holiday, is it just chaos that when the brain's missing? It's painful to come back and to just see everything all over the place, but um, it's fine, I manage. And do you have other sort of musical things happening that you're juggling at the moment? Actually, yeah, I just very recently launched my very own label, which is called Human Concrete Block. The actual physical copies are here already. Nice one, thank you. Cool, thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Paul and I manage the distribution. It must be around 200 labels, which is quite a hefty amount, spread all over the world. We get about 10 to 15 new label submissions a week. 
Uh, yeah, I also run Off Paradise, which is a label on the distribution. It's been going for two years. Um, we've just announced a new white label with Baltra. And then we'll have our 10th main label release coming out at the end of the year. Big party at Corsica Studios in the works for next February. And also Dispatch Agency, which is a booking agency, which used to be a mixtape channel, but is now mixtapes and bookings, which I'm slowly growing. So as if this wasn't enough. <laughs> so I'm Tanya. Um, I've just started helping out with distribution as well, so mainly looking after our pressing and distribution deals as well as some of the brokerage and also just assisting with general lobster stuff as well and also assisting with the shop wherever they need an extra pair of hands, I'm there. Tanya came in on like, she was our first um, intern actually. We've not had an intern until this year and I always said I didn't want to do it unless I had enough time, we had enough time here to spend with someone who was doing that and secondly um, that there would be a job for them at the other end if they worked hard enough on doing that um, and I managed to put that in place this year and we were like let's do this we can really get someone into it and she came in on a first day and we were like cool so you're in charge of the production and it was just like ah. but it's like I've done it before and I've just sat there uploading things to SoundCloud or just being asked to go and get some tea or take something to the post office and it's like, do you need to be given a responsibility and it's like, there's nothing better than having that. So I'm Teti, I've been working here for uh, three years now and yeah, I started working, helping Jimmy with like all the graphic stuff, like creative design and everything. And yeah, everything like, I don't know, has been evolving so far since I first started. So I was in like the original Limehouse warehouse and moving here <laughs> yeah i helped jimmy with all the design for like new labels and then like posters and like graphic design related things there is rosie who assists me on the label and she also is an incredibly varied member of staff she also works with me at corsica um so she's kind of across the board there's lisa who does the bookkeeping and then there's also mark who is one of the people i interned for seven years ago who runs civil music it's probably single-handedly the best person I've met at doing the label admin publishing digital contracting so he does all that for us but it was nice to bring that full circle and to work with someone who gave me an opportunity like at the start and now we're working together so number three is the danger zone by D Dan for something that is so tough it has like these hooks that draw you in and I think it's a really good entry point for if, if someone's wanting to really get excited about about faster and tougher like styles of techno um he's also an amazing producer and individual and that i was really excited for that release that kind of launched some of i guess coming off the back of people like snowbone and mance and reflect it kind of really pushed some slightly more extreme ideas um of what we were exploring in techno from that point and then now say through people like 90 process um, and D-Dan, who's got a new record out. Comment on Lobster Theremin's Discogs page. Oh no, don't say it. <laughs> that says your label invented the genres Meme House and uh, YouTube House. <clears throat> what, what are those things? And uh, is that a criticism or not? It's interesting. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is intended as a criticism. And I think I know who may have made that comment. Actually, I did a little bit of research. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Um, but I think it has a few references. YouTube House, I guess, in in a way, it's an observation of how a lot of our music was discovered in a way. The prominence of YouTube channels can't really be understated and we were very fortunate that channels like Herfdy, UK Funkio, a number of people were uploading tracks, making videos. It was all very like VHS rip or kind of, you know, quite retro, but I guess it you could draw a lineage of influence back to what Aurora Halal was doing when she was making videos for people like Beautiful Swimmers. But it was almost like that influence carried across and then the idea of a platform as well, like a channel was created, I guess, because they were uploading so many videos. 
So I think that's more of a comment on that. And uh, I think they've tried to incorporate a couple of throwaway terms to just, you know, give us a kick in the ribs. But you probably got to scroll down about 500 releases to see that comment now. So if I just keep releasing, it'll just get further down the page. <laughs> that's the only reason I'm doing it. That's the drive. <laughs> just please, I can't even delete the comment. <laughs> There's also the so-called lo-fi house. Had to do uh, it, didn't you? Maybe could call it a phenomenon. Um, no, of course. And I'm, you know, you've anyone that sort of listens to your label's catalogue and its offshoots know that there's loads of different styles of electronic music um, and it's reductive just to give it one name but how closely aligned do you feel with that generation of producers who have sort of been lumped with that term? I think it's important to deconstruct the idea of what that term means. I think in a strange way it, it is related to two things. One, when a young audience like late teens, early 20s are going to get into electronic music, it's always a bit more exciting when there is something new associated with it. I mean, people getting into Bloghouse, let's say, or people getting into Future Garage, you know, let's not forget these terms that popularised many artists in the past. I see it as an extension of that where young people who would maybe not come into contact with House and Techno had this thing that was like separated them from like another say generation or another period of time. I guess the term itself is probably drawn from the Facebook group. There was like a tongue-in-cheek Facebook group called Strictly Lo-Fi and people were using just the term Lo-Fi for a while I think to describe certain styles of music and certain records and then someone coined the phrase Lo-Fi House and it just kind of built and built and I think a younger audience saw it as like a legitimate subgenre. It started to build. Certain artists got assigned to that. I think certain artists and labels got snared into that as well, into this definition. You, you're right, it's a reductive term, but at the same time, it's like if its purpose was then to excite a young audience, then that is great. Like, I'm so happy that people managed to have something that was an entry point to electronic music that wasn't just, you know, this kind of like, oh you don't know about you know like the history of this the history of that and it's like well actually we've got something new and fresh and we're doing this and you know you've got these young people doing those things for, for me personally i don't really have much of a connection to it um i think the strictly lo-fi group in general like as a music group was really positive and like had a lot of really key individuals in there like i met artists in there i met people who run channels in there it's really nice and that was the old one there's now a new one that is like sixteen thousand people or something the old one was like a thousand it was like a community but yeah i think in general it's one of those things that's divided a lot of people that term was weaponized by a large amount of the press to be able to cynically put down labels that they saw as being illegitimate or not say cool enough i think we received a bit of a hit with that and I don't know, I guess I sort of observed quite a few individuals and outlets doing it, but my feeling was always that persistence would overcome any trend and any kind of passing grievance or, you know, feeling of, you know, that, that, that we weren't, what we weren't doing was credible. And I think that's been proven correct this year because I can see that the feeling is generally a lot more positive from the outside. I've always felt very confident in the records we release. Um, but it feels like, yeah, everything is properly turned and we've got we've actually got a wider community on our side now. Instead of maybe there being one side of like hugely passionate fan base and the other side of kind of just being cynically slated. I promise I'm not bitter. I'm not a bitter lemon, I promise. <laughs> the fourth record got quite a long title, so it's four, five, twenty, eighteen, fifteen, nine twenty catchy that's by Lucy. when i first discovered her music i was just i think it was christmas time and i was quite i think there were like a few personal things and like in one of the tracks she actually uses like a really good christina aguilera vocal this is on the you can get it release and like i absolutely hammered that track like every day like i was just like super emotional just like it's just like you know you've got this like power track that like saves you and I was like actually I just need to send her an email and like release this because it's so good and then with the follow-up release um, I mean she had some very fast and quite tough house on the flip of that record and it kind of hinted at some other sonic ideas she was developing and with the new record a lot of it is very electro based some of it is very fast some of it is a bit slower and more lush kind of reminds me of some of the more had heavy records we would have released like in the early years 
years. Vintage Lobster refeeding back into new releases, which is nice. But she's also played quite a few showcases for us and she's a great DJ and I think it's just, it's really nice to work with really talented young people who are like so invested in what they're doing and, and showcase this this breadth of talent for different styles. That's and And this record is just about to come out, so I guess it kind of punctuates like this this era of this year where even the center is like a new design we've put together to kind of highlight the more faster or techno electro-y kind of releases. I guess it punctuates this year as like where we're trying new ideas and moving into new spaces, but also with artists that we've worked with for a number of years. independent business you've got the record shop doing parties you've got the label we've got distribution how do you see things progressing from here um, I would really like to diversify the content that we do and get a bit more involved in the music community on a larger scale I'd really like to host more events here at the space that we have I'd just like to I guess use the sort of infrastructure that we have to be a stronger enabler for you know, like new artists, new labels or individuals looking to enter the music industry. There are quite a number of projects that I've wanted to do for a fair while. Anything from actually putting together a, a good guide to how to start an independent label, which doesn't really exist. It's more like an indie label book that is, you know, just starts off on publishing and you've put it down after the second page. Like that's not how you start a label. You start a band camp, you go and press a record, you do everything wrong and then you try and work out how to do it better. There's too much formality and every page of those books is just another brick in a wall that stops you from doing what you want to do when someone needs to go, actually, forget about all this. This is These are just the things you need to do. I think that's it. It's like what limits people's potential is these ideas that intimidate and that stop you from doing things. It's just uninspiring, there needs to be something different. As a wider thing, I'd like to get more involved in education in the music industry and awareness as well in terms of some of the challenges and issues that are, that are arising because I have a quite a unique centre point, I think, being an event programmer, um, a label head, an artist. I've kind of done quite a few of the other roles as well and I think I need to find an outlet for some of this information um, to help to educate people who are coming through in the industry, especially now that it is an industry and it's not just an underground, which is what a recent observation. You know, seven years ago this was all an underground. It's, it is underground music, but it is now a full-blown industry, like everything has changed. Thanks to Jimmy and the Lobster Theremin crew for showing us around their operation. Time now to meet journalist Will Coldwell on his trip to Liverpool, exploring the origins of the UK's harm reduction movement for club drugs. The last time I made the journey to Liverpool was to interview the family of a young girl that tragically died after taking ecstasy. That was last year, when I was reporting on the movement to promote harm reduction strategies for recreational drug use in the wake of a dramatic rise in deaths in the UK linked to the club drug. 
harm reduction, that is, trying to find pragmatic solutions to ensure people that want to take drugs can do so more safely, rather than, say, simply treating them like criminals, has been gathering momentum in recent years. The work of on-site drug testing charity The Loop, led by Professor Fiona Meesham, is probably familiar to most people in the UK that enjoy clubbing or go to festivals. You might have bought them a sample of your pills or mystery white powder to find out what's in it. Meanwhile, Global Drug Survey, the world's biggest survey of drug users, led by Dr Adam Winstock, has been working hard to disseminate practical information on how to take drugs safely, including the catchy slogan for potential pill takers, don't be daft, start with a half. Although the harm reduction argument feels very current, and elements of it certainly are, the ideas are not new. In fact, many of the ideas that form the foundation of harm reduction practice originated in the late 80s and early 90s when dance music culture, and the drugs that accompany it, was exploding across the UK. This is what brings me back to Liverpool. I'm travelling up to the city to speak to Dr Russell Newcomb, a drug researcher who was at the forefront of the harm reduction movement at this time, regularly going undercover to a number of clubs and raves across the north of England to find out exactly what drugs people were taking, how they were doing it, and what clubs, and clubbers themselves, could be doing to keep everyone safe on the dance floor. I want to find out how far we've really come over the past three decades. Russell, thanks very much for agreeing to meet me today. The first thing I was interested to kind of hear a bit about was right back when you first started thinking about harm reduction in ecstasy. Because originally you were working with, was it heroin addicts? Yeah, and yeah. injecting heroin users mainly, yeah. Yeah, so um, when did you start to think about ecstasy and club drugs as something that would benefit from sort of harm reduction? We were doing mainly research on HIV amongst injecting drug users and, and uh, we started to see this idea of harm reduction as a kind of umbrella philosophy around what we were doing. So I, I was one of the main people sort of developing the theoretical ideas around this and uh, we uh, spoke to our health authority bosses about the fact around 1988 that we were becoming aware that people were using this new drug ecstasy in local nightclubs uh, as a result of the raves scene, illicit raves being squeezed by the police, the local uh, nightclubs then started putting on rave nights on Friday and Saturday nights. So the health authority agreed to uh, let us go into a couple of clubs at weekends to see what was going on. And when we came out and they asked us what we thought we could do about that, we suggested like the same harm reduction approach being used with drug injectors could be used in these nightclubs. It would need obviously adapting to the drug and the setting but we felt that we could do that. But when we told them what we thought some of the initial costings might be do for doing this across Merseyside, uh, they already said, no, right, we can't really take this on right now. Um, so what we did, as I, and as a lot of us had always done, it was freelance research on the side. So we started setting up our own private research at weekends to go into the clubs and start researching it. So this wasn't at first a, a harm reduction response in the clubs, it was a research response. We decided to find out in depth what was going on in the clubs, mm. what drugs were people were taking. This research developed, we started to develop harm reduction ideas. Most of it was in the 90s. The very first club was a big club that was very famous at the time called Quadrant Park in North Liverpool and uh, initially it had a capacity of 2,000 uh, and our first uh, uh, piece of research was in Quadrant Park, a group of us, uh, four of us uh, with research experience went into this club uh, and did the first research there and of course we were hired directly by the club and, and in and all the clubs we did subsequently it was the same approach um, that clubs who were looking at losing their licenses because the police had been into the club and said there's drug dealing and drug use all over the club and we want this club's entertainment and alcohol licenses removed. The clubs would then contact us and ask us if we would come in and do research to show that they could get on top of the problem uh, using a kind of harm reduction approach and then over a series of nights show that they could reduce the number of visible drug dealers at least uh, and get on top of the problems that um, young people as it mainly was then were having in the club so yeah it started in 89 and went on to about 95. Back then what was the kind of concern of the authorities around clubs and drug use because obviously when the rave scene started there was a lot of sensational news reporting around it and then as you said when the clubs started to accommodate this scene as well yeah. what were the kinds of fears or comments that were coming out of um, the local authorities and the media about this back then? The initial response, as it often is with a, a new drug problem, was to kind of demonise it and sensationalise it. 
So um, the local authorities, the health authorities, and, and in particular the press were going on about this new dangerous drug ecstasy being used by thousands of young people. An 18-year-old girl fights for her life after taking a contaminated ecstasy tablet at her birthday party. Like heroin or cocaine, ecstasy is defined as a class A drug. Operation Patriot, another weekend. Staffordshire police have launched one of the most ambitious high-profile operations against the drug ecstasy. Operation Patriot was launched in September 1991. Since then, there have been almost 500 arrests and some notable seizures of drugs. As we reported in our, our nightclub reports, there was virtually no violence, very little disorderly behaviour compared to most nightclubs. Uh, incidents of ill health were also fairly low, you know, because alcohol use at that time was very low in the initial rave scene. Very few people were drinking. It was all use of ecstasy and to some extent uh, LSD and speed. Hardly any cocaine use back then. Uh, but the local authorities and, and the press were mainly um, picking on the fact that, you know, so many ambulances went to these clubs to pick up people who had taken too many drugs or had some kind of reaction or problem in the club. So they were focusing on all the negative aspects of it and not the fact that there was an unprecedented low level of violence and health problems in these clubs apart from a few. Uh, our research was pretty undercover at the time and so until that surfaced in the press a few years later, the press were really doing nothing but demonising it at first. So this undercover research you were doing, were you kind of posing as clubbers? Yeah, that's basically how it worked. I mean, I, I was uh, aged in my early 30s at the time. Uh, most of the younger researchers I hired, closer to the age of the punters who were I would say the average age range was about 16 to late 20s. Most conspicuous approach I'd ever get was young people coming up to me and going, are you the DJ? Because yeah. they could see I was a bit older than the others. We'd try and get one research observer to about every 500 people attending the club. And then over an hour, we these researchers would carry out systematic observations, which means they would count every incident they'd see in four categories of behaviour, violent behaviour, disorderly behaviour, incidents of ill health and incidents of drug use and drug dealing, which was mainly what the clubs were interested in monitoring at first because that's what they were facing losing their licences over. So um, the clubs were the ones hiring you? Then. Yeah. That's uh, quite interesting. I mean, did they they presumably then had a result that they wanted from this research or were they quite open and just interested to, to find out what was going on? Most of the managers or owners of the clubs that we met to set up this research uh, kind of understood what we were telling them which was that over several nights monitoring your club we will show that if you adopt our harm reduction and health response to what's going on in your club we can, you should, and, and this is what usually happened, get a reduction in all the problems in there, including open, visible drug dealing, uh, problems related to drug use, and you'll do this by following the advice we'll give you in interim reports every Monday morning. We take the club an interim report saying, these are what the problems are that you need to deal with by next weekend. And then we could show, you know, in graphic form, over six or eight weekends, for instance, that incidents of ill health dropped off over the period of research as the club responded to the problems we identified. So, for example, um, in the first club we worked in Quadrant Park, they had a balcony and it was quite a low balcony over the dance floor and lots of people used to dance around it and it was just up to just below waist height or belt height for most people. And so we could see people off their heads on ecstasy hanging over the balcony waving their arms, you know, and we could see like an accident about to happen. So we told the club manager on the very first week of, uh, of first Monday after the first weekend of this research, you need to make that balcony higher. So he immediately did and raised the balcony up to, had it altered. So the balcony now went up to chest height. And yeah, and, and like very first weekend, I remember telling him, you've got all the taps turned off in, in the toilets so people can't get access to cold water. He said, well, I can get it at the bar. And I said, yeah, but you're charging like, 50p or a quid, whatever it was, for a glass of cold water. And this problem has been well identified in clubs now, but at the time it was brand new. And we said, well, people will might overheat. Yeah, 
because it's very crowded. Some of them are on drugs, which will overheat them. So you need to turn on free water back in the bathroom. So they did that. Another thing they were doing, for example, just as one other example was, and we found this in other clubs, was locking the security and fire doors because little scallies would get into the club, would go and open these security or fire doors and let their friends in for free. Mm. By the time the alarms had gone off and they'd got there, 50 or 100 scallies had got in for free. So they started chaining up the fire and safety exits. So we said, you can't do that. You'll have to put secure, hire more security officers and put them on those doors to stop that problem. You can't chain those doors up in case there's an emergency. You know, people won't be able to get out. It's crazy because things yeah. like the balcony and the fire doors, these seem like um, such kind of rudimentary kind of safety measures. Yeah. Now it's quite wild to imagine clubs operating in, in that way ever. What are the main changes that have come into place thanks to your research? I think there were lots of knock-on effects of what we did over the years that helped clubs change and develop more of a harm reduction approach to uh, what goes on in uh, dance nightclubs. Um, but I guess um, perhaps one of the most you know, specific identifiable effects we had was in Manchester when in 1994 um, I was working quite closely with a drug agency in Manchester called Lifeline who were trying to develop similar approaches in Manchester to what we were doing in Liverpool and Merseyside and it was Michael Mell, an old colleague of mine who um, is a well-known uh, researcher and uh, worker for the Lifeline Drugs Agency who came to me and said Manchester City Council uh, passed on a few of the nightclub reports you've done in Liverpool to Manchester City Council and they're very interested in developing a kind of harm reduction approach uh, to their clubs in, in Manchester. And so in 1994, they developed what they called, I think, a, a minimum code of practice for nightclubs based on the harm reduction uh, recommendations we'd come up in our initial nightclub research in Liverpool. And this was things like making sure there's free cold water in the toilets, that security doors, doors aren't locked and all these other harm reduction points were taken on and, and in Manchester they made this a condition of licensing clubs that they met this minimum code of practice for making the clubs a healthy safe place for people to go and dance in so yeah I think that was the most concrete effect we had was Manchester City Council bringing in this code of practice which meant that any clubs to get their entertainment license they had to meet certain harm reduction approaches identified in this research we did in Liverpool. But yeah, I think that had knock-on effects over the years in other areas. Did you um, ever come close to having your cover blown in, in any of the clubs? Yeah, a few times. Um, there was just a few customers who came up to us and sort of said, what are you people up to? I see you here every week. I see you kind of getting, because uh, we'd have little kind of meetings of all researchers every hour or hour and a half. We'd all get together, compare notes, see if there was any burning problems that we needed to deal with and a, a few people in there and these were often I think people linked to the drug dealing in there and um, the drug dealing was often quite well developed and dealers would have people looking out for police or anything else that might be going on so yeah we occasionally got approached by customers who I think were involved in the drug dealing in there who asked us what we were doing why we were feeling you're watching people we've seen you watching people we've seen you doing it systematically first you do it at that end then you move up that end so yeah it's a couple of times we, we were spotted by um, dealer types in there and asked us what we were doing so we explained to them what we were doing and then I would tell them who the head of security was and who the club manager was and if you don't believe us you can go and ask them and they'll tell you why we're here it's all covert we're not working with the police we're not giving dealers names to the police and and we never did that you're listening to the hour from resident advisor we've got here some of your um reports back from the 90s um from drug use by young people at a rave nightclub in northwest england we've got in yeah. front of us can we have a look flick through inside some of these i like here what we've got this quite formal yet sweet description of, of yeah. the the atmosphere in the club oh, yeah, um yeah we did we apart from our systematic counts we also did what we call general observation uh, which was more descriptive and this one in the very first report quadrant park is many if not most customers engaged in energetic dancing or raving for most of the night to continuous loud music and an impressive laser show accompanied by periodic bursts of strobe-lit smoke. Many dancers contributed to the sound by blowing whistles, letting off horns, chanting, clapping and singing, and spectacular outbreaks of mass cheering and waving were frequently observed. The behaviour of customers was generally excited but controlled, remarkably friendly 
with hugging being more frequently observed than kissing or other intimate behaviours. The only near comparison which can be made is with the behaviour of people celebrating at festivals or carnivals. Yeah, we wanted to make that clear because in nightclub uh, licensing hearings, a lot of the people in those hearings would never have seen this and would have no idea what was going on. You know, they'd see police reports going, everyone in the club is taking drugs, and that's all the police would say when we wanted to give the big picture. Yeah, in 1994, the Mix Mag magazine asked me if I would come to a rave in somewhere in South Wales, Swansea, I think, uh, to do a case study of the effects of ecstasy on a young man at an all-night rave. So he, this guy agreed to come back every hour, I think it was, to a room we were in so we could monitor physical and psychological effects of ecstasy on him in, in the setting of a rave rather than, you know, in a, in a psychology lab. Uh, and we did this, but I think, as the report says, by about midnight, we lost the guy. He <laughs> never came back, even though he was being paid. Because um, uh, it was something they wanted to do as part of a larger article they were doing on the, on the rave scene at the time. So, yeah, it's a kind of little graph showing that we measured here self-perceived mental states. We asked him to rate on a seven-point scale, the famous old seven-point scale, how alert, happy and friendly he felt from 8 p.m. Well, just after he took ecstasy up to 1.30 a.m. when we lost track of him. <laughs> <laughs> One of the main figureheads in kind of harm reduction um, today is, is yeah. Fiona Misham, who yeah. was, I believe, one of your researchers. Yeah. What's different now in harm reduction? Is it the same ideas being pushed again? Um, or, or is there a shift at all that you've noticed? There have been some changes. Um, I think there's a lot more clubs now willing to work with the health authorities over how they should run their club. Uh, and I think that wasn't just the work we did at the beginning, but you know, lots of academic research since then has uh, taken you know much more high-powered, highly funded approaches to researching um, the rave scene and the dance club scene, and, and have come up with a whole host of recommendations about how these clubs can be run more safely but I think I think the one thing that stands out more than anything is um, the work Fiona Misham has done um, with The Loop on this checking of drugs uh, I think initially at festivals and now moving into uh, other areas like clubs and city uh, centres uh, and at the beginning we try to say the same thing that if we could identify what was in the drugs and which tablets were uh, the most adulterated uh, or which tablets are high dose and so on right at the beginning uh, we could do that but back then we didn't have the technology that the loop has now for identifying the contents of drug tablets uh, that wasn't available and what we suggested was that the police who seize drugs from dealers in clubs should quickly feed back information to us or other teams uh, to produce leaflets to go straight back into clubs within a week or two and tell them which tablets to avoid basically not which which were the best tablets which would be benefit maximization i think not harm reduction but yeah harm reduction approach would say yeah you should avoid a particular batch of tablets that was around uh, the, one of the main problems with that is tablets can change rapidly from week to week you know one batch was popular one weekend or dangerous one weekend can be gone the next weekend um so yeah that was the best we could advise at the time but i think what the loop are doing now with drug checking is possibly one of the best harm reduction interventions you could have into drug use in nightclubs checking the contents of drugs and letting people quickly know what which tablets or powders are most likely to harm them and which ones to avoid is a is one of the best approaches you could take to reducing potential harm including deaths you know to young people who attend nightclubs and um Ideally, the best way of doing this would be to have a legal regulated supply of ecstasy and I firmly believe ultimately that's the best approach is for ecstasy to be legally regulated so that there is a controlled legitimate supply of it and backed up you know, by paramedics working in nightclubs so that if problems still do occur there can be an immediate response within minutes to people uh, having uh, problems with using ecstasy or other drugs. So yeah, I think that's the, the best thing to come out of the latest work on it in, in nightclubs. 
as time goes on, drug prohibition just continues to spectacularly fail as a as a, a policy towards the use of drugs. It doesn't work. It's it's never worked. And there's increasing evidence uh, being uh, coming from research being done on the effects of prohibition, showing that this was inevitable. That if you don't legally regulate drugs, then eventually. The gangsters who run this drug scene will just bring more and more drugs with more and more problems into all the scenes they sell it in. And the problem with drug prohibition is it kind of militates against harm reduction all the time. Prohibition is a kind of harm maximization. It, it just leans all the time to making things as bad as they could be. Uh, and so, yeah, normally I think what harm reduction is doing in dance clubs is trying to work against the worst effects of what drug prohibition does and how that works out in nightclubs. Another thing that we seem to have seen more of is, is reports of people dying in, yeah. in nightclubs. Um, how much difference can harm reduction strategies make in terms of reducing those deaths? Yeah, I, I think they can. I think you can't underrate the effect of good, hard, up-to-date information. And I think um, over the last few years, again, uh, linked to Fiona Musham's work, we've seen the development of the crush, dab and wait, I think it was called something like that approach, just giving people useful, you know, little mottos and statements which allow them to remember that there is a safe way of taking that tablet and you, you can never stop um, some people with uh, a high capacity for risk taking, you know, from killing themselves uh, with drugs. That isn't the main group you're aiming the information at. But to have specific pills identified is, I think, the best thing for people to know which tablets in particular contain the high doses or are adulterated with other drugs which are more harmful. If you can get that information back to people at the event itself, then I think you can maximise our harm reduction approach and I think that's why drug checking is probably the best thing to emerge in the harm reduction approach in clubs. So um, we've got one more report that's caught my eye here, which is, is called Rave Speak. In some of the reports, you know, we often quoted what ravers had said to us uh, in interviews at illicit raves in parks and forests and caves and so on. Uh, and uh, as I remember some people saying, you know, you, you need a kind of uh, a list of words, you know, to help people understand what... Uh, some of these ravers are saying in their interviews they're using a lot of jargon so I decided to produce this little report called Rave Speak <laughs> let's see now uh, what have we got here oh yeah on one that was a comment are you on one was, have you taken ecstasy yeah and then off my cake or face very intoxicated yeah there's a lot of terms relating to specific levels of intoxication like saying you were mellow yeah, mellow, a milder, more peaceful, relaxing atmosphere or state of being on ecstasy. When you'd had a small amount, people would say they were mellow. When, when they were off their heads, they would say they were off their cake or face, out of their tree. There's a whole range of different phrases and words for being mildly or seriously intoxicated by ecstasy. And we end with zonked. Oh, zonked, <laughs> the very last one in the Zeds, yeah. It sort of ends with a kind of yin-yang pattern uh, bordering a, a quote from a Frankie Knuckles yeah, tune. Right. One word could wash them away, one word could take their place. Tears by Frankie Knuckles. Speaking to Russell, it's clear that the harm reduction movement today owes a lot to his work. While it's warming to see these ideas, which are, when you think about it, fairly simple and logical, gaining wider support from the authorities, it's frustrating that 30 years after being mooted, and with a huge body of research to support it, the benefits of a harm reduction approach is still even up for debate. Instead, we remain in a system that prioritises the criminalisation of drug users over the safety of them. Looking through the work and conclusions of the Rave Research Bureau, and how many of its proposals persisted through the 90s and remain relevant right up to today, we can see that the ideas around harm reduction have been consistent for a long time. What seems to chop and change, however, is the government's appetite for it. Right now, harm reduction is having a moment, but this can't be taken for granted.
Thank you to all our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour and thank you for listening. We'd like to end this episode with a special shout out to RA's former editor, Ryan Keeling. Ryan was instrumental in making The Hour a reality and we'd like to thank him for his amazing work and wish him all the best. <laughs>